Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Today, we'll be talking about how ancient viruses influence our brains and the evolution of sweet potatoes. But first, we'll hear a report from Dave Robinson about sports concussions. Take it away, Dave. Have you seen that movie that came out in 2015 called Concussion? It starred Will Smith. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It's the true story of a pathologist who investigates the death of several professional football players. And these professional football players were eventually diagnosed with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. Now, CTE is a neurodegenerative disease, and if you watch the movie, you'll see that it led to a lot of behavioral problems among these football players mood issues, dementia, and often leads to suicide. And by the end of the movie, the character played by Will Smith concludes that the CTE is caused by the traumatic head injuries that occur while playing football. Now, this pathologist didn't really prove the link between football and CTE, but just kind of pointed out the correlation. Now, of course, professional football is a multi-million dollar business, and so there's a lot of controversy about this link between head trauma, concussions, and permanent brain damage. Well, there was a paper that was published in the journal called Brain just back in January of 2018, and they entered this controversy by studying the brains of eight young men who had recently passed away. Of these eight young men, four of them were placed into the group called the concussion group, and let me give you some data about them. The average age was only 18 years. Three of them had died within days of their last concussion. Two of the young men had died from committing suicide. One died on the football field after a hard tackle. One died of brain damage 10 days after his last concussion. And between these four young men, they had experienced from two to ten concussions each. Oh, so what is a concussion? It's an injury to the brain. It often involves losing consciousness, but not always. And some of the symptoms include headaches, confusion, dizziness, slurred speech, if the person sees stars, if they have delayed response or sort of a dazed look. Those are all signs of a concussion. So that was the concussion group. And then the experimental control group was also made up of four young men who were athletes. They were football players or hockey players, but they had died of other causes. Their average age was also 18 years. Two had died of heart attacks. One died of a drug overdose and one died of suicide. Within this group, they had experienced three to seven concussions each which is very similar to the concussion group, which had experienced two to 10 concussions. The big difference between the concussion group and the experimental control group was that in the concussion group, the young men mostly had died within days of their last concussion, whereas in the experimental control group, they had died of other causes. So the families of these eight young men had all donated the bodies of their sons to science, and these researchers removed the brain and examined it for damage. 
the researchers observed significantly more damage to the blood-brain barrier in the concussion group, and they also observed more damage to the blood vessels in the brains of the concussion group compared to the experimental controls. Two of the brains in the concussion group had signs of phosphorylated tau proteins, tau spelled T-A-U, and tau proteins are normally involved with microtubule function in the brain, but in two of the brains they examined, the tau protein was hyperphosphorylated. And what this does is it causes them to lose their normal functioning. They accumulate in the brain, and they can cause CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Now, you might have heard about these tau proteins before. They form tangles of proteins that are also found in the brains of people with other neurological diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, dementia. Don't forget, these are 18-year-old men. So it's very concerning to see phosphorylated tangles of tau proteins accumulating in the brain. And it's worth noting that none of the brains in the experimental control group showed signs of tau protein accumulation. One of the conclusions in this paper is that it wasn't really the concussions that were linked to CTE, but rather damaged blood vessels that are causing inflammation of the brain. Don't forget the number of concussions was really not different between the experimental group and the concussion group. The researchers had access to a lot of information about these young men, and they conclude that it was the number of blows to the head that causes the biggest problem, not the number of concussions. So this means when you're watching football and you see a player get hit in the head and they're knocked on the ground and they waver a little bit while they're trying to stand up again, so they didn't have a concussion, but there could still be a problem there. They could still be damaging their brain. They report in this paper that 20% of CTE cases don't actually involve concussions. In fact, if you have watched that movie Concussion with Will Smith, the very first case of the football player, he was a player for the Pittsburgh Steelers, he had CTE, and he had never actually experienced a concussion. So don't think that you're out of the woods just because there's no concussion involved. Every blow to the head could be causing problems. So coaches, athletes, team physicians, they need to take every blow to the head seriously. And again, don't forget, these young men had only lived 18 years, so it doesn't take decades and decades of blows to the head before there's problems. Now, this particular paper was published by researchers at Boston University, and in 2007, they had published another paper where they examined the brains of 202 former football players and they found that 87% of those former football players showed signs of CTE. It was much higher in NFL players than in college players. It was 99% in the NFL football players. And all of these donors had shown some signs of brain damage when they were alive. So it's not totally an unbiased sampling since they didn't test football players that were healthy at death, but is very concerning. Now, this first paper I mentioned also has a significant amount of research done with mice. It's always difficult for me to uh, read these papers about mice experiments because they're a little bit gruesome, but they were able to do experiments that they couldn't have done with, with humans. And what they did is they tied the mice down and then strike the brain with these little piston devices. And they were able to measure the intensity of the strike and the number of strikes. And then after that, killed the animals, autopsied the brain, and determined what sort of brain damage occurred. 
They basically concluded the same thing they observed with the young men's brains in the mice. It wasn't the number of concussions that had been induced, but it was the number of total strikes to the head. They did observe a lot of brain trauma in the mice, but it was the total number of blows rather than the concussions themselves that seemed more correlated. There's a local twist to the story. I read that the athletic directors at the high schools here in Kentucky have been discussing the value of spring training for their football players, high school football players. Some athletic directors thought that Kentucky should eliminate spring training for football players. One of the reasons was because of the fear of these of, of head trauma, but that another group of athletic directors were arguing against that ban they think it's very important for their athletes to go through spring training. So this is something we all need to think about, not just the football players and the coaches and the athletic directors and the team owners, the universities that have football as a sport, but fans need to think too about whether the potential risk of brain damage for athletes playing sports like football and rugby, whether it's really worth the entertainment value for us. Okay, so we did spend a lot of time talking about brains in a sad way. I'm going to transition to a little more exciting research about brains. Um, Dave, I have a question for you. How much of you do you think is virus? Hmm. How much of your genome is virus? I don't know. I had the flu a few weeks ago. Are you <laughs> counting that? Other than that, oh, I would say maybe, oh, you know, 20%. Higher. <laughs> 30%. Higher. <laughs> Oh, okay, half. <laughs> Close, yeah. So, I mean, this is a huge number, but scientists think between 40 to 80% of the human genome arrive from some sort of archaic viral infection. That wow. number is crazy. I mm -hmm. didn't expect it to be that high, did you? No, that makes me feel small. <laughs> it does, um, but that's okay. So our genome is, is shaped by viruses, and, and viruses are genetic parasites. So they have a genetic code, and, and it the virus will infect a host cell and will hijack them and force them to reproduce their own viral DNA so it can go on and infect other cells. So it basically makes our host cells little factories for making more viruses. So this process is usually harmful for us, like when you get the flu, but every once in a while uh, these viruses can inject their DNA into our genome and then usually that's just benign. Sometimes they become useful enough to hang around. So this paper came out recently where they were looking at some of these um, ancient viral proteins that have kind of lingered in our genome, and they found one um, that's doing very important work in our nerves that seems to be from very ancient viral um, DNA. So that was a, acquired by four-legged mammals quite a long time ago. And so what this virus is doing, or this viral DNA, is making a protein that will package up genetic information and then send it out to the nerve to the next nerve cell. So it's, it's doing this very viral function um, that we think is important for consciousness. Wow. Now, um, is this anything like, anything like computer viruses? <laughs> kind of. I mean, <laughs> the virus wouldn't exist without us, just much like a computer virus wouldn't. But it's, it's doing this very helpful thing uh, in our cells. Well, what, how do you define consciousness? Oh, that's difficult. Interesting point you bring up is this viral protein that's called ARC, um, this viral DNA makes a protein called ARC, and this can be found in, in four-legged animals. So, you know, we're special because we do have consciousness. But this event happened twice in history. Worms and flies also acquired this viral protein ARC separately in a separate event, 
and their body also uses them. So somehow in us it's adapted for consciousness, where in these other organisms it hasn't. Yeah, and do they have a theory about how that happened? Not yet. So that's where this research is going. So so what this did was I first identify that this action is being performed by this protein, and this protein is of ancient viral origin. So the next step would be determining how this actually plays a role in consciousness. Um, because if we get rid of this protein, the nerves will just wither away and die. Hmm. Now, viral genomes are pretty small. How come you said it was more than half of our DNA? So it's not just this virus. We've acquired a lot of different viruses during evolution. So many, many different viruses have been able to incorporate their DNA into ours to be able to shape what's going on. So it's not just this one in particular, mm -hmm. but a lot of them have contributed to it. So obviously this is kind of new and evolving research, so it'll be really exciting to see where it goes, and you know, maybe we can revisit this in a couple months. Let's hear from Dave on a connection between sweet potatoes and the South Sea. Hey, today I want to stick up for a member of the fruit and vegetable world that people often ignore when they see it in the grocery store. It's the sweet potato. Yeah, you might buy a sweet potato or two when you're preparing Thanksgiving dinner or maybe for Christmas holiday dinner. But otherwise, the poor sweet potato really doesn't get a lot of attention. One of the things you'll notice when you go to that part of the grocery store that's selling sweet potatoes is how much variety there is in that genre. You'll see elongated ones and round ones and orange ones and white ones. There's really a, a lot of genetic diversity within sweet potato. And that's what I want to discuss a little bit today. Now, the first issue is what's the difference between sweet potato and yam? Now, yams are um, a completely different species, actually belong to a completely different botanical family than the sweet potato does. Yams are monocots. They originally come from Africa and Asia, and they're often white-fleshed on the inside. And on the outside, it's a thick bark, almost looks like the bark of a tree. Sweet potatoes tend to be more orangish in color, in terms of the flesh color. And then the outside skin is thinner and more like a regular Irish potato that you're used to seeing. Turns out that most of the things called yams in grocery stores are not actually yams. They're actually sweet potatoes. The only place you can find true yam these days is in an, an international market of some kind. Basically, the, the things you see in the sweet potato aisle of the grocery store, they really are sweet potatoes. In fact, USDA now has a regulation that if there's a sign that says yam, and if it's not actually a yam, it's got to say somewhere on that label that it's actually a sweet potato. So sweet potatoes are what we're mostly eating, not really yams. Now, there's a lot of confusion about how sweet potatoes came to be a domesticated crop. There's general agreement that they come from South and Central America there's a lot of interest in how a sweet potato originally became domesticated. In other words, going from a wild plant to one that people actually farmed and cultivated and even bred. One of the ways that researchers examine how crop plants became domesticated is by looking at their DNA sequence. Isolate genomic DNA, the chromosomal DNA, and determine its exact DNA sequence and compare different varieties or strains to each other. 
It's a pretty complicated process, requires very sophisticated mathematical programs and very powerful computer technology. And the results of this kind of study in the past have indicated that sweet potatoes actually were domesticated two different times, one time in South America and then another time in Central America, including the Caribbeans. These Caribbean varieties of sweet potatoes are the ones that Christopher Columbus would have tried when he first visited the New World in late 1400s. And that would have been the variety of sweet potato that was taken back to Europe and then spread within Europe after that. When Captain Cook explored the South Pacific back in the 1700s, he found natives on islands that were cultivating sweet potatoes. Now, there's two theories about how the South Pacific Islanders got the sweet potato. One is that Christopher Columbus took the sweet potato to Europe, and then European sailors took sweet potatoes around the world and introduced sweet potatoes to the islanders of South Pacific. The problem with that theory is that they have found, I guess you could call them fossilized remains of sweet potatoes that go back a thousand years, and that's long before the time of Christopher Columbus. So there's an alternative theory is that rather than being provided sweet potato by Europeans, the South Pacific Islanders actually found it on their own. The theory is that they canoed, they somehow sailed from the South Pacific Islands to South America and picked up the sweet potato there and took it back to their islands. Now, this is no small task because the islands of the South Pacific that we're talking about are thousands of miles from the coast of South America. And so this has been a, a point of controversy for quite a while. So there's, there's a recent research paper that came out that resulted from a collaboration between a group of researchers, and they wanted to approach these two questions. Was the domestication of sweet potatoes in the Americas, was that a two-time event? Did it happen once in South America and once in Central America and the Caribbean? Or did it just get domesticated once? And then secondly, where do these sweet potatoes that occurred in South Pacific, where do they come from? How did they get there? By way of Europe or by way of sailors from the South Pacific getting them from South America? So this group of researchers collected strains of sweet potato from all around the world. And they examined the DNA sequence of these plants again. They collected something like 200 different varieties of sweet potatoes from all around the world, mostly from the Americas and Caribbean, from the South Pacific as well. Not only did they collect living varieties of sweet potatoes, but they also collected DNA from herbarium specimens. There were preserved herbarium specimens collected by botanists as far back as the mid-1700s. Then in addition to all these different kinds of sweet potato, they collected plants from about 40 different species that are closely related to sweet potato. So they looked at this enormous amount of data, basically came up with the conclusion that sweet potatoes were actually only domesticated one time instead of two times. It's thought that the only domestication event in the Americas for the sweet potato was in Central America and the northern coastline of South America. That's where the sweet potato originally comes from. So to make a long, complicated story shorter, I could say that the researchers did identify the species of plant that they think is the precursor to the modern sweet potato. It's a weedy plant with the scientific name of Ipomoea trifida. Ipomoea trifida. 
Now, the domesticated sweet potato that we're eating is Ipomoea batatas, two different species. But it's thought that Ipomoea trifida is the plant that gave rise to Ipomoea batatas. We're talking 800,000 years ago. Now, this plant still grows in the New World. It's got a thin little root, not something you really want to eat. But over the course of 800,000 years, a lot of things happened to this plant genetically to give rise to the sweet potato. One thing that happened was polyploidism. The chromosome number increased in these plants. Most plants are diploids, meaning they have two sets of chromosomes, just like humans. One set of chromosome from the mother, one set of chromosome from the father. Well, the modern sweet potato is a, is a hexaploid. It's got six sets of chromosomes. And that's one of the things that happened in the process of going from Ipomoea trifida to Ipomoea batatas. And then at some point during that time, humans would have gotten involved with the evolution of the sweet potato and started selecting for varieties that, that were desirable to them, whether it was the size of the tuber, the color of the flesh, how easy it was to grow, whether it was resistant to pests, how easy it was to cook, etc., how it tasted. So Ipomoea trifida eventually gave rise over the course of 800,000 years to Ipomoea batatas, which is the modern sweet potato. And all this happened in one place or one area at one time, Central America and the northern part of South America. Then there's this question of the South Pacific Islands. How did they get the domesticated sweet potato? It turns out that the researchers observed that the DNA sequence in the South Pacific Island strains of sweet potato, they're just too different from the South American and the Central American varieties. They're just really different from one another. They're just two different kinds of plants, even though they're all within the same species. The idea that European sailors brought the sweet potato to the South Pacific Islands only a few hundred years ago is just not, there just isn't enough time to explain the genetic diversity that they find in these potatoes. So what these researchers concluded was that somehow those potatoes got on the islands 100,000 years ago. They evolved on their own on the islands and then eventually would have been domesticated by the people of the islands into the modern sweet potato that's native to that area. Yeah, there weren't even people on the South Pacific Island more than a few thousand years ago. And so it's believed that these potatoes somehow got to the Pacific Islands on their own approximately 100,000 years ago. How did they get there? Well, the researchers speculate that they floated there, or maybe they could have blown in on the wind or some combination of, the, of those two. They did find evidence of other species of plants that are related to sweet potatoes traveling long distances over the ocean. There's one species that occurs in different islands in the South Pacific. It's not a sweet potato, but it's a relative of it. And they found another species on the Hawaiian Islands that appear to have floated there from South America. And so it's not ridiculous to think that the seeds or some part of the plant floated, or the, the seeds or the tuber floated long distances on a log or what have you, about 100,000 years ago to the South Pacific Islands. And then when humans did start inhabiting those islands a couple thousand years ago, then they would have started domesticating the sweet potato. Now, the domestication of the Central American sweet potato is thought to have occurred about 5,000 years ago. And then domestication on the South Pacific Islands would have been much more recently. So there you go. The domestication of sweet potatoes happened first in Central America and northern part of South America about 5,000 years ago. 
and another domestication event happened in the South Pacific Islands much more recently than that. Now, there are some researchers who have offered an alternative explanation for this occurrence of sweet potatoes in the South Pacific. That is that sailors from the islands did indeed travel to South America and collect the sweet potato and take it back. But the reason that those sweet potatoes on the islands are so much different genetically than the South American potato now is that the South American potato somehow disappeared. So what you're seeing in the sweet potato of the islands is a remnant of the original sweet potatoes that occurred in South America. And some botanists are even blaming Christopher Columbus and all the Europeans that followed him afterwards, maybe altered the environment enough to make the native sweet potato there go extinct. And so that would be the explanation about why it now it appears there's only one domestication event instead of two domestication events. So the great sweet potato debate is not over. There are still these two conflicting ideas about how the Polynesians might have attained the sweet potato plant. But it's an interesting project. First of all, it shows you how much genetic diversity there is within sweet potatoes. And this is very valuable information for agriculturalists and breeders who might use these different genotypes to develop new varieties. So that's very valuable And the other interesting thing about this research is it allows us to speculate about ancient Polynesians traveling thousands of miles in these primitive boats going to South America. It's provocative because if there was agricultural exchange between these two peoples, is there likely to have been cultural exchange as well? So the next time you're snacking on a big plate of sweet potato fries, it gives you something to think about. And now, here's some headlines that we didn't have time to talk about. Say, here's one I like. RNA injected from one sea slug into another may transfer memories. The microbial habitat of Jupiter's moon Europa could be sustained by radioactive sources. Oh, well. Here's one. Your blood type might make you more likely to get traveler's diarrhea. In 2008, Oklahoma recorded one earthquake. In 2015, that number was 903. This has been shown to be a result of wastewater created during fracking and disposed of by deep injection into the underlying rock layers. Wow, here's one. Nanoparticles could help rescue malnourished crops. The latest Hubble finding confirms a nagging discrepancy showing the universe to be expanding faster now than it was from its trajectory seen shortly after the Big Bang. Researchers suggest that there may be new physics to explain the inconsistency. Nouns slow down our speech. I've noticed that with myself. I can say verbs and adverbs and adjectives easier than nouns. This is frightening. False news stories are 70% more likely to be retweeted on Twitter than true ones. And people, (laughs) not bots, appear to be the ones to blame. Astronomers find fastest growing black hole known in space. A startup is pitching a mine uploading service that is 100% fatal, using technology for exquisitely preserving brains in microscopic detail using a high-tech embalming process. The inside of a proton endures more pressure than anything else we've seen. Surfers are more likely to harbor antibiotic-resistant superbugs. Here's one related to that. The CDC advises, don't swallow the water in a hotel swimming pool. Epidemiological modeling of the 2005 French riots are being used as a model for the spreading wave in the role of contagion. Genes can record forensic clues to time of death. 
Here's a headline from the past. Harvard scientists were paid 50,000 U.S. dollars in the 1960s to promote sugar and paint fat as the bad guy. <laughs> oh, as a botanist, I like this one. Plants outweigh all other life on Earth. Turns out 82% of all organismal carbon on Earth is from plants. Next is bacteria and then fungi. And animals only make up one-third of 1% of all the carbon on Earth, and that's mostly the insects and crustaceans. As always, thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Don't leave it all up to the lab rats. Go out and be a citizen scientist. Science empowers all of us. Hey, if you want to read any of the research articles we talked about today, Links can be found on Bench Talk's page at forwardradio.org.